You've definitely heard about it, and you've probably read the 40 pages of the Michigan Blueprint for Comprehensive Student Recovery. This document will help district leaders like yourself guide your schools from surviving to thriving as we enter the next phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today on Talk Soup, we sit down with Kevin Polston, Craig Carmony, and Brangie Donson to gain their insights on how this document was made and how district leaders might be able to use it in their communities. You're listening to Talk Soup, a hearty podcast full of education news and information served up fresh straight from the MASA kitchen. We're sitting down with Michigan education leaders to discuss hot topics and their impact to school administrators from across the state. So grab a spoon. Soup's up. Today we're joined by Kevin Polston, currently the superintendent at Godfrey Lee, for a few more weeks anyway, and also the chair of the Governor's Student Recovery Council. Brandy Johnson, who was the staff liaison for the governor's office to the council, and Craig Carmoni, superintendent at Meridian, Michigan's current superintendent of the year and co-chair of the council's academic recovery committee. Welcome to Talk Soup, and thanks for joining us. A lot of great information in this document, and I know that MASA and other education organizations are working to help operationalize these recommendations. I wanted to start off by asking you each to share a little bit about your involvement with the council and the creation of the Michigan Blueprint. Why don't we start with you, Kevin? Thanks, Peter. It was an honor to serve as the chair of the Student Recovery Advisory Council. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of the members of the council also served on the Return to School Advisory Council last summer. And so this is really a continuation of our work about supporting our students through the pandemic and then beyond the pandemic with recovery. And I'm incredibly proud of the work that we accomplished in uh, publishing the blueprint. Thank you. What about you, Brandy? Yeah, just to, to piggyback on what Kevin said, I also had the pleasure of uh, staffing the Return to School Advisory Council, which was established uh, in the spring of 2020 and worked over the summer to create uh, the roadmap, which was really more than anything, a health and safety document about how schools might be able to return to in-person face-to-face learning still within the throes of the pandemic. This council that we're here to talk about today that created the blueprint uh, took a much more forward thinking uh, approach to thinking about uh, and recognizing the true toll of the pandemic on children and thinking about how we and school leaders can uh, help students recover uh, from the pandemic, not just academically, but mentally and socially, emotionally, physically, um, and really to, to keep them on a trajectory uh, toward success in partnership, in partnership with family and uh, communities. So um, we quickly got to work um, over uh, these last several months and developed a, a document that we're, we're really proud of. Thanks, Brandy. I think that's a really important distinction that you highlighted, that this, this work was about the academic side, not necessarily the health and safety side, although there is the social emotional component as well. This isn't about masks and vaccinations and infection numbers. This is about ensuring that students are thriving after surviving last year. It's a, it's a really good point. Yeah, not at all about COVID or distance between desks or how often they have to be sanitized. This is uh, much more focused on um, the whole child and um, on helping them sort of get back uh, on track and, and really thriving um, and ultimately creating a system that was 
uh, better than the system we had pre-COVID. Thanks, Brandy. And, and Craig, why don't you tell us a little about the role that you played in the, uh, the council? Yeah, uh, thanks, Peter. So uh, I was the co-chair of the academic recovery portion of the blueprint. And, uh, you know, I, I will just say that uh, surrounded by several great uh, educational leaders and those who are advocates for children. And, you know, we, we poured in every week, uh, several hours into focusing specifically on what we could do to support uh, children and unfinished learning. And, you know, I think that the, the fact that we weren't focusing on COVID, that we were focusing on issues that matter to leaders in education, uh, my committee had almost 100% attendance every single week. And I think it just speaks to the fact that as educators, we value the work that was going into this, uh, into this document. And we, we really wanted to focus on equity. We wanted to focus on things that would support children and learning and how we could better serve them. And also focus on student voice. Like what, what can we do to better support students, but we have to also listen to them. That's a big part of, um, I, I think a missing component um, that uh, we need to value what our students are telling us. Uh, that student voice, that equity piece needed to come out loud and clear in this document. And I really believe that, uh, you know, thanks to Kevin's leadership, um, that that was something that uh, you'll see throughout the, the document. Kevin, can you say a little bit more about student voice and, and its presence in this document? Yeah, we started our council, our very first meeting with a student panel that included students from across the state representing you know, different geographic areas, uh, racial makeup, um, age. And it was great to hear from our students the experience that they've had through COVID, but also what they hoped you know, we could do through our recovery efforts. And so you'll see uh, student voice represent itself in uh, screeners that we should ask our kids how they're doing and what kind of supports they might need. We, in the academic section, there is a choice for what type of assessment, whether you know it's a demonstration of learning through a portfolio or possibly through a project that we ask kids you know what their you know preference is. But also even in the beginning of the document, there's a 10-step process that says create um, a recovery team. Students should be on that team as well. You know, too often we overlook the most important voices in education and that's those we serve, our children. And they have insights that are incredible that they're willing to share only if we take time to ask. Uh, also encouraged to do perception surveys about their experiences, uh, just a, a continuous model of improvement. Student voice has to play a key role. I think your, your colleagues here would probably agree with you. And I, I know we do here at MASA, that's something we talk about a lot is making sure we hear from the, the customer of education and, and that's really our, our, our kids. One big takeaway um, from this is there, there's this big citation for the need of adequate, equitable, and consistent school funding, which is something obviously we're all working very hard to make happen through the work with the SFRC and Launch Michigan. In the meantime, though, how can federal relief, relief dollars be used to aid in the district's recovery process this fall and down the road? And I guess, Brandy, I'll throw that one over to you since you've been intimately involved in, in budget negotiations and policy priorities from the governor's office. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're certainly in a bizarre moment um, in time. I think that uh, with sort of the very healthy (laughs) fiscal outlook uh, that we have in Lansing right now in terms of the school aid fund, um, you know, in no small part due to significant federal resources that are available to the state, to Michiganders, to schools. Um, And so I think of those, it's really the consistent funding that is going to be the hardest one to actually implement. I think it's particularly challenging given term limits that we see in legislators. It's hard to talk about um, what school aid is going to look like in three years or four years, um, let alone uh, in the next six months. And so what Um, you know, a huge motivating factor in creating this blueprint is to provide true resources and supports to schools to really maximize and optimize their use of federal dollars to be a demonstration of what can be done educationally um, when uh, schools uh, and students are provided uh, the resources that they need and deserve to be uh, successful. Obviously, the trick will be uh, sustaining those investments over time, but we're, we have a really unique uh, moment in time, once in a generation uh, moment is what we've been calling it, uh, to get this right and to, to spend these dollars in a way that really um, maximizes student success. That's a very good thought on that, sort of laying that groundwork for what can be done with the resources we've been asking for for, for many years. Um, I won't ask any of you to respond to this, but one of the things we noted in the revenue numbers, the reason some of the school aid fund is doing so well is a shift in spending habits of Michiganders away from services. And now is the time I think we're going to be advocating strongly that our members contact lawmakers about implementing a service tax to help uh, sort of stabilize that growth when when we switch back to purchasing those services. Well, so we all know, you know, you talk about sustainability. There's an educator pipeline shortage that doesn't seem to be getting any better. I, I spoke with some administ- or administrators yesterday who were talking about leaving the system early for other, for other careers. The, br- the blueprint talks a lot about top talent. How can we address attracting and retaining top talent when there's already such a shortage of staff beyond teachers, um, but teachers included. Uh, Craig or Kevin, do you want to take a a run at that one? Well, uh, you know, I think that uh, this probably in, you know, in in many ways goes back to um, the comments that we just talked about with funding. Um, we, We know that we have to Uh, do a little bit better, I think, in terms of our salary schedules to attract uh, attract young talent, especially into the profession and retain talent. Uh, So there there is a funding component that we know is uh, is fairly obvious there. I think one of the things we all realize is that uh, when we're getting job applications right now, um, we're not getting a lot of them. And many that we are receiving are those already employed in other school districts, which means that we are just, uh, you know, shifting where people are at. And that, uh, that certainly is problematic. And, you know, it does, uh, it does get to this concern over equity as well. Um, that, you know, depending on where you're located, uh, that may determine whether whether or not you're going to get applications at this point. So that you know, I think that we've got to find figure out a way uh, 
to ensure equity within the system that way. I'm just not sure what that solution looks like. But uh, the other concern I think that many of us have right now is that these ESSER dollars may actually put greater pressure on um, the talent shortage that we already have. Uh, because I think what most school districts are trying to do right now is fill positions with um, uh, counselors and uh, educators in many other positions. So the number of positions that we have are expanding at a time when the talent pool is shrinking. And that uh, that's only putting additional pressures right now on the entire system throughout the state. So, you know, in some ways, the federal money is very much welcomed, uh, but there are perhaps unintended consequences that are going to be part of that where um, my concern, I guess I would say, overall for students throughout the state is all students deserve access to high quality educators. Um, and unfortunately, some of our, you know, some of our students who need, uh, have a greater need for those high quality educators may not have the access to them that they deserve. And that's my, uh, that's been my concern. And I think that continues to be even a greater concern of mine moving forward. Thanks, Craig. Um, very important uh, that we keep an eye on the shortage, though. You've, you've raised some good points about sort of the, now that the demand is so high with all these resources, it will necessarily exacerbate it. Kevin, what about you? Do you have the sort of magic wand solution for solving the pipeline problem here in the Michigan educator workforce? I don't necessarily know if I have the magic wand solution, Peter. Otherwise, you, you and I may have a separate conversation. Uh, but what I do know is that Michigan students and are incredibly talented, and we need to do a better job of uh, encouraging those students to go into education. As educators, we need to sell the profession. When Launch Michigan did a survey, I believe in 2018, and it said 75% of educators would not recommend the profession. Um, that's a huge problem. So as a state, we need to raise up the esteem of how educators are held and, and valued. And I'd say that's first and foremost. I'd say, additionally, we need to incentivize our best and brightest to go into education, whether that's loan forgiveness, whether that's you know, other means of uh, grants um, to support our students and retain them in the profession. But in many cases, we also have support staff that are more closely connected to our communities than our certified staff are that want to become teachers. And so how can we pave the way, whether partnering with two-year or four-year schools to get those degrees necessary to advance and become certified teachers because you know, we know they know our kids very well. We know they know education well. They just don't have the credential yet. So how can we partner together to do that? I think it's gonna take a variety of strategies. There's not gonna be just one, uh, but if we don't start right now, then we are gonna be in a world of trouble even five years from now. You know, so cadet teaching programs, articulating credits, just like early middle college for you know, health sciences or engineering, why don't we have more of those for education? It's an opportunity that's right in front of us and I think right for the picking. And we just have to galvanize our energy around the talent development of our state. You know, Kevin, you said a few words that I'm sure 
Brandy's ears perked up in terms of loan forgiveness and, and grants in terms of higher education. I know that's one of your passions, Brandy. Is that beyond the blueprint? Is that something that is is on the docket for the governor's office or at least a priority to, to talk about some of those ways? I know you've got your initiatives to get more Michiganders with, with um, post-secondary credentials. What about specifically the, the teaching profession? Yeah, this actually um, just uh, came up in a discussion I was having. So since the report has been uh, released, I've, I've made a transition uh, professionally to focus on the governor's uh, 60 by 30 initiative to increase the percentage of Michiganders with a college degree or certificate to 60% by the year um, 2030. And, um, you know, outside of education, this came up around kind of the same issue with nurses. There's a nursing shortage. Uh, and, you know, could we uh, forgive uh, some student loans to help make the profession more attractive. And I was like, every single time you say the word nurse, you should also say and teachers, <laughs> because um, it's very, very similar. Peter, if I could maybe just add one more point. We we talked on the uh, on the committee about teacher efficacy and, uh, you know, the 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 things that have happened during the last several years, when we talk about, you know, Kevin's, uh, you know, sharing that 75% of teachers would not recommend the profession. When we look back what has happened within the profession over the last decade plus and the amount of supports uh, because of funding levels that have been removed that have put additional um, duties on classroom teachers. Um, I think it has created, um, the the situation right now where teachers have become an educators period just so overloaded with their work requirements so we've removed counselors from you know in many ways we've removed other supports within schools we deal with less administrators and that just means that more falls on everyone else's plate throughout the system so you know perhaps um you know you know i know for me um the best marketing tool in terms of finding new or applications is word of mouth right now from my teacher saying, hey, you should apply here, you should do this. Um, that is, I think, upon all of us to try to create cultures and systems within our schools to make ourselves attractive. Uh, but it also takes the ability to be able to go out and have those supports and create those cultures because you know, we're, we're not all blessed to be able to do that. Great point, Craig. Thank you very much. Um, let's talk a little bit about the pre-K side of things. Um, the, one of the big takeaways from the blueprint is the need for universal pre-K and starting student supports as early as possible. Of course, we need the funding to make that possible. So let's talk about the policy recommendations of the advisory council and when, how they're su suggesting we get there. I will say, um, frankly, this was, per, you know, perhaps the least controversial <laughs> recommendation uh, in the report. It was, um, you know, pretty much a no-brainer um, and across all facets of um, the education ecosystem and uh, among family and community engagement and higher ed and, you know, even the, the public health uh, experts, there was just, you know, universal agreement that this uh, investment would uh, pay dividends. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, we hope that uh, the governor's proposal uh, gets across the finish line. So our members love to hear um, about the the process. Talk us about a little bit of the controversy, not the controversy necessarily, but like the, the sausage making that, that, that took place to get us to the blueprint that, that I'm holding in my hands now. So the process to create the recommendations was, you know, we had a pattern that we looked for. We looked for what does the research suggest? What is the needs of our students in, in Michigan? So every recommendation is going to start with a root cause, a challenge, also have a goal, but it's going to be rooted in evidence. So uh, research has to support the recommendations. And then you'll also see sprinkled throughout the document are high leverage actions right here in Michigan, and then high leverage actions just in general that uh, educators can use. So the primary audience was our school leaders. And we also had, as, as Peter, you've mentioned, the section for our policymakers as well. But we wanted to make this uh, a plan that it, it's, it's all recommendations. There is nothing mandatory in the blueprint so that each community can engage their stakeholders and do a, an analysis of what their needs are and then identify which strategies best meet those needs. And so the research base to support the recommendations is essential because we didn't want uh, school leaders to not feel equipped to implement whatever the recommendations were. And so when you ask about what controversy might exist, uh, um, the, by and large, we, we really didn't have um, you know, many disagreements over what should or shouldn't be included. Uh, I'm pretty proud that, you know, it's, uh, you know, just over 40 pages. Um, it's incredibly intuitive to read and review. You know, when you look at some of the other documents across the country or even from the federal government, uh, I will tell you the blueprint stands up against all of them and you're not going to find a better one anywhere in the country. And it was written right here by Michiganders that volunteered their time during a time when no one was looking for extra to do, but they saw the incredible value that we could have by coming together to support school leaders and communities that are desperate need for recovery plans. If I could just like underline that point, so many um, states, you know, I was, you know, I'm able to connect with my counterparts through, for example, the National Governors Association or the Education Commission of the state. So many, you know, so, so many states didn't pull together something um, as comprehensive as this, but um, those that did often partnered with a consulting firm to try to, you know, write the roadmap. And that, 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 you know, hand on Bible, that was not what happened here. We did have the great pleasure of partnering with a phenomenal nonprofit consulting firm called Opportunity Labs, but they, they literally helped facilitate the process and frankly, um, helped us bring in some national experts. Um, and maybe Kevin can speak to that. Uh, we had guest speakers that provided a national perspective at each and every group meeting to help kind of ground, you know, help us all look up and out um, outside of Michigan to better understand the context. But literally every word that is written in this document, but was written by the volunteers on the advisory council. They wrestled with and wordsmithed and um, debated, especially within the subcommittees. And there were, we ran seven subcommittees, um, you know, every single recommendation. And I think the, you know, at the end of the day, the council was incredibly proud of that. 
Well, that's great to hear. I know that sometimes when you, we do see these reports, they're they're written by a consultant and not really practical for hands-on and lack that student voice or even that educator voice that's so important. So that's it's really good to hear. So Craig, as the uh, chair of the Academic Recovery Council, I want to talk a minute about the focus on student wellness. We've seen a shift to focus focus on educating the whole child within the past decade, but the COVID-19 pandemic really brought to light new mental health challenges for students um, and existing challenges have been made worse. Seems like this might be a good place for educators to start with recovery when we return to school in the fall because it's common ground for all of us. How does this blueprint address student wellness and what steps can educators take right away in this area that differ from current practices? Yeah, so, you know, the, the thing that I, I think that's the other focus of this document was the whole child and this, uh, this raising the awareness that social emotional learning needs to be um, a major part of what we do in education that we, these aren't new challenges, but they're certainly challenges that have been uh, magnified as a result of the pandemic. So within this document, you're going to see some specific recommendations for things that we can do uh, to support our children um, in the area of wellness. I would emphasize the, the word recommendation because um, not every child or every school has been impacted the same way uh, throughout the state. So I think that this, um, that the blueprint does provide the recommendations, but not telling everyone this is what you should do. Uh, I think it's use this document um, and know what took place for your students in your community. And that will help you better, um, better navigate on how to best move forward. So you kind of answered my next question for you. We've talked a lot about how this is voluntary. These aren't mandatory. It's not really all or nothing either. It's this, a district can look at this and say, these best practices will work for my community. And these are just not in the cards for us. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I think that's, uh, for me, that's a very accurate statement. And to not, I would just add, um, and not to be like too crass, but I'm a, an incredibly pragmatic person. If I was a school leader, um, how I would approach the blueprint is a bit of plug and play <laughs> into um, your planning uh, document. So it obviously offers a robust um, sort of planning sequence and how to develop the, the comprehensive student recovery plans and really the, pro the very thoughtful, inclusive, engaging process that schools should take to create a comprehensive recovery plan. But once a school district has identified uh, its priorities and to your question, Peter, like, no, it would be like impossible, I think, <laughs> to try to simultaneously um, make huge progress on the like 40 goals <laughs> that are within this document. But once a school district has isolated its uh, individual priorities, the document then becomes incredibly uh, a useful tool to really plug in the data and the research that provides evidence that the strategies that you are choosing to address whatever priority or goal you are trying to um, improve or change, you can just like have the evidence right there, have the high leverage actions, and you'll even have um, 
you know, one of your colleagues in Michigan to pick up the phone and, and ask how they did it because we like filled it with real life Michigan examples uh, that were already district examples that were implementing these policies. So as, you, as school leaders think about the reporting that they're gonna have to do on spending these funds, or just even their own strategic plans that they work on with uh, school boards, this I think becomes um, a highly practical tool for school leaders to use. So we're, we're, we're optimistic and um, on our prospects of being successful here, but what barriers do you think exist to successfully implementing the blueprint in our, in our school districts across the state? Uh, Kevin, do you want to, do you have any ideas on, on barriers that might be there as we look to advise districts on how to best use this blueprint to guide their success? One is the incredible fatigue that school leaders have had just due to being in a crisis for you know, the better part of the past 15 months. And so we have to acknowledge that you know, the ability to finish up you know, the school year, which we've had, uh, to then have unprecedented numbers of students in summer school to look at some of the unfinished teaching and learning to create uh, plans for return to school for some students that haven't been in school in 18 months by the time we come back in the fall and looking at what are the diverse options that we still will have to maintain uh, until a vaccine is available for all school-aged children. In addition to you know, creating you know, recovery plans using unprecedented funds over a multi-year period of time. So the barriers are, I think, the, I, the ability to do all of those things at once, as well as you know, innovation is a part of this blueprint as well, that prior to COVID, we weren't serving every child in Michigan well through no one's fault, everyone's best effort. We were doing the best we could with the system we had. Well, you'll find in the academic recommendations and then a segment in the policy uh, recommendations for an innovation zone, to think differently about education, we demonstrated that we can do different because we had to. And so now what opportunity presents itself because we wanna better align our system to what research suggests about how students learn or have choice for our kids. Some students thrived during the last year. So how can we still maintain those conditions for that to happen? So I think all of those, you know, you have the rigidity of system, you have the um, fatigue of our school leaders, you have the uncertainty still that presents itself for the fall. And we have these complex recovery plans that are still in, a, in our midst to make. I think to the degree that associations, philanthropy, uh, collaboration among school leaders can come together to support uh, our school districts will be uh, helpful in creating successful plans. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Craig, Kevin talked a little bit about some of the things might, we might've taken away from this. Not that there's a silver lining to a global pandemic, but you know, in the education world, what did you learn as, a, as an educator superintendent that you took away from this that might be a positive takeaway from the last 18 months or so? You, you know, I, there are going to be things that we did during this pandemic that we are going to continue doing in education because they were things that, that worked, that they were perhaps forced upon us. Um, now, I think that there are fears that um, perhaps some of those things might have been one-time opportunities, unfortunately, with some of, the, uh, some of the rules that were relaxed a little bit this year in terms of pupil accounting, um, that uh, those are issues that I hope uh, 
hope can be addressed. I think many groups still continue to identify those. But I think that focusing on the wellness checks that we have done throughout the school year, for example, with both staff and students and focusing on how they are doing, uh, that is something that we need to continue to do in education. Um, I, I think that uh, we, we get so busy doing the day-to-day -day that we forget that um, we have to take care of ourselves and each other. And that's something that I think really came to light during this time is that, uh, you know, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We put a lot of pressure on our staff and we put a lot of pressure on our students. And, uh, you know, this year, I think that we, we learned a little bit more about um, the things that were important and the things that maybe weren't quite as important in education. Um, so that's one thing that I, that I would say that I, I hope that we carry forward, uh, you know, as we move out uh, into this recovery phase. Great. Well, we're just about out of time. So I'll ask each of you if there's anything else you'd like to add before we sign off. And Brandy, I'll go ahead and start with you. Um, I would just add, uh, I would just express um, my and the governor's gratitude for the members of the advisory council, including uh, Kevin and Craig, and also um, Bob Shaner, one of your members that participated on uh, the council, the, the roughly 30 individuals uh, that were members of the council were joined by something like an additional 80 members that served on subcommittees. Uh, and these individuals provided such significant time and energy and expertise. Um, and it was, uh, you know, just to say on behalf of the administration, we're so incredibly uh, grateful for um, their hard work to develop the blueprint. And we truly hope that it is, um, a capacity builder for our school leaders. Well, Brandy, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you for all your hard work on behalf of our members as uh, you learned to write executive orders and, and do those types of things and really helped us navigate the pandemic. So we miss you in the executive office, but mm -hmm. now you're doing good work over at Leo. Appreciate it. Uh, Craig, what about you? Anything to add before we, we say goodbye to our listeners? Uh, you know, I just echo the, uh, you know, how the, the opportunity to work with some amazing people throughout the process of creating the blueprint. Uh, it was a professionally reward, rewarding experience and uh, certainly one that uh, uh, I grew from as a leader. But I would, uh, the other thing that I would just uh, maybe emphasize to our school leaders is patience. This problem, uh, you know, was not created overnight and uh, we, we like to solve things quickly in education. Right, we we like to be able to say, got that done. Let's move on to the next challenge and next problem. Um, you know, I I really think that the the blueprint does a nice job of you know laying out options for for leaders, but these aren't things that have to be done overnight. Uh, they're not things that can be done uh, in a short amount of time. Uh, these problems didn't come at us quickly. These are uh, these are um, problems that have been in existence uh, for most of us, all of our careers that uh, we're still trying to get better at. So I would just emphasize patience moving forward and uh, the, 
the realization that what we're what we're being asked to do, uh, we have to be able to do it over the course of time and be able to sustain it. And I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the I think challenges that many of us have sitting in the superintendent seat right now are in the uh, how do we sustain what we're going to be doing uh, and making sure that we're not going to take on legacy issues, uh, legacy costs that uh, are not going to be harmful after um, you know um, after we're kind of done with uh, some of this federal funding specifically. Kevin, what about you? Anything that we've missed or that you think our members and listeners should know about? Well, Peter, thanks for the opportunity and to MASA for the continuous support throughout you know, this process. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for the advisory council and subcommittee members. Uh, again, these are all volunteers that you know, gave their time and energy. So uh, just deep appreciation. The federal funds that we have across the state are uh, once in a generation or even further investment into public education. That is incredibly rare at the federal level to invest in public education to the degree that it has been done. We have to make good on that promise of investment. And so I ask our members that are listening to really take this effort seriously as I know they will, uh, because we're gonna be looked at and we're gonna be evaluated by the return on investment of these federal funds when further future state budgets are considered. And so when we make recommendations for systemic, you know, structural, you know, adequate, equitable, sustainable school funding, we have to demonstrate that when we were given the opportunity to make an investment, here's how we made it for our children. We can't afford for that investment to go away. We need to sustain it. Otherwise, our kids are going to suffer from it. And that's our responsibility as school leaders to make sure that we do that. And I'd say lastly, the governor has really put out a lot of support for the blueprint. She aligned her supplemental budget that was announced after the consensus revenue estimating conference in strict adherence to the recommendations from the blueprint. And I ask and encourage our members uh, to advocate and support that budget for the first time in any time anyone can re remember to have the zip code not determine what the base foundation allowance is for a pupil. Uh, that we can eliminate that gap and get all districts to that same amount um, is, is something we have to advocate for and make sure it gets across the finish line so that we can have you know, continuity and consistency in our budgets and not have to wait for the whims of what may come politically. This is an important time and we must continue our work. Thanks, Kevin. And it's our hope here at MASA work you put in this to put the blueprint together will guide districts from surviving to thriving. So thank you again for your work. Thank you to Kevin Polson, Brandy Johnson, and Craig Carmony for joining this edition of Talk Soup. We appreciate your time, insights, and energy. Thanks for listening to Talk Soup. If this is your first taste, be sure to click subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MASA Soups. If you'd like to share your story or information on Talk Soup, please visit gomasa.org slash talksoup to learn more.